Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Colin, Jill, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for turning out on a cold Canberra night and I join with you in acknowledging the Ngunnawal traditional owners of the land on which we meet. It's a great pleasure for me to be here at the ANU and under the auspices of the Canberra Times to talk about this book because this book arose in part because I moved to Canberra about seven years ago and I wondered what I was going to do once I got here because in part I came because I'm a Jesuit priest, I'm much involved in the public square on issues to do with law and social justice. And when I was asked by my superiors to come here to Canberra, I thought it would be useful to familiarise myself with the key national institutions, particularly the National Archives, the Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, and the National Library. And I also thought at the time that basically Indigenous affairs in this country was in a complete mess. And I wondered what I as a non-Indigenous person could possibly do about it. And having had about 30 years experience in the field and being of course deferential and respectful of Indigenous viewpoints, I thought what might be best was to try and get an insight into what some of the better white fellows had done. And so putting all of those things together, I thought how better than to look into the work that was done by Barry Dexter, Nugget Coombs, and W.E.H. Stanner of this university, who you might remember after the 1967 referendum were constituted as the Council for Aboriginal Affairs. So six or seven years ago, as I started this primary research, I had a working title with University of Queensland Press, which I rather liked, which was Three White Men and the Dreaming. But as things moved along, it was clear that within the mess of Indigenous affairs, there was agitation going on about whether or not there could be a referendum to constitutionally recognise Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. And so it was through that lens that I started to write about Stanner, Dexter and Coombs. The book is dedicated to a young Aboriginal man from the Nayu Nambiu community, Daly River, in the Northern Territory, which those of you who know Stanner's work would know that his greatest primary research in Aboriginal affairs was done in that reach between Port Keats and Daly River. Most of you will not have known the young Aboriginal man in question, but many of you would actually have seen a photo at some stage of him when he was a baby. Because in 1986, you might recall, even those of you who are not of the Roman Church, Pope John Paul II came and he had an historic meeting with Aborigines in Alice Springs. And at one stage he held up a baby, a newly born baby, and he was wearing the Aboriginal colours. And that was later this young man who took his, young, his life at Daly River. 
So I've just had the academic year in Boston, which was wonderful, except for the winter. I got back, the book was ready, and so I went to Daly River to present the book to the family there. And then the aunt of the young man, Miriam Rose Ungermer, who's a very distinguished Aboriginal artist and educator in the Northern Territory, she has established a foundation for assisting remote communities dealing with suicide. So I spoke at a fundraising dinner in Darwin for that foundation, and then I felt ready to come south and address the book. I got back here to Canberra, and the first person I delivered it to was Barry Dexter, who, as you may be aware, at 94 years of age, is still remarkably engaged on these questions. As I was writing the book, I developed the habit where I would take the Lamingtons and he and I would have morning tea together as we reflected on the sorts of issues that I was researching. I then took the book to Mrs. W.E.H. Stanner, the widow of Prof. Stanner, and once that was done, I felt that I was ready to face the public uh, with an explanation as to what I was up to with a book of this sort. There's been a lot of media about it, but that's been largely focused on the questions about the referendum. I'll come to that, but for you as people who enjoy literature, I thought it might be useful in the first instance to open up some of the wonders of the writing of Stanner, Dexter and Coombs. They, as a Council for Aboriginal Affairs, after the 67 referendum, it's no secret that Holt, as the Prime Minister, was very surprised at how overwhelmingly the referendum had been carried. And he thought he'd better do something, but he didn't quite know what to do. So, being the 1960s, he set up a three-member Council for Aboriginal Affairs, which of course had no Aborigines on it. But he chose these three extraordinary white men to constitute the Council. They then were in operation until 1976-77 with the passage of the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, which they saw as their crowning achievement. During the years of both Liberal and Labor governments, they were very critical of all ministers for Aboriginal Affairs, except for Jim Kavanagh in the Labor Party and Ian Viner in the Liberal Party. In terms of their relationships with government, I think it's beautifully summed up those of you who have the book at page 66. Uh, Stanner at one stage was uh, in bed in St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. He was unable to attend a council meeting, so he penned a note. Any of you who have seen Stanner's writing, he has the most magnificent handwriting. It's very small, you almost need a magnifying glass to read it. But he wrote this note to his fellow council members, Dexter and Coombs from his bed. The various papers all read and wept over. You know what? Our Bill Wentworth makes me think of one of those infuriating slot machines on old railway stations. You put in your penny for advice or counsel, wait for the click that never comes, turn away in despair, and just as you're walking away, there's a queer rattle, and out pops not a bar of chocolate or even an acid drop, but a card saying, a tall, dark man is coming into your life. Send regards to all deserving cases. <laughs> These three men, day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, did battle with the bureaucracy, particularly with the Department of Interior. And one of the lessons in terms of the pending referendum 
where Aboriginal Australians are saying they want a voice, a place at the table, is it's not good enough simply to be at the table when legislation is being passed. You have to be there at the interface with the bureaucracy. Between 1967 and 1974, they agitated for a statutory charter. They were never given one. And it wasn't until 1974, the Whitlam government gave them a one-page letter setting out their role. But even that, they judged to be inadequate. If there is to be a true Indigenous voice with a place at the table, it requires at least a statutory charter. Stanner was an extraordinary individual who had the most profound respect for the dignity and the spirituality and the religious beliefs of Indigenous Australians amongst whom he lived and worked for a long time. When the Malerpum case was being prepared, which of course was the first land rights case, Stanner became a great advocate for that case. And you'll understand there were many forces at work here in Canberra to try and stop that sort of litigation. Stanner, as an anthropologist, having worked mainly in Port Keats, Daly River, made a couple of brief visits to Yukala in order to get a sense of the situation there. Let me quote to you what I've written at pages 94 and 95. When preparing for the Malerpum litigation, Stanner had spent a week in November 1969 at Yukala a community he'd previously visited only once. Pondering what role he might play in the case, given his extensive anthropological experience in other parts of the Northern Territory, he went in order to see as far as I could, by brief tests, to what extent I could say that knowledge gained in other parts of Australia would have some relevance to my opinions about the state of community life, the kind of customs they're following, the extent to which they follow those customs in Arnhem Land. While there, he attended the Sunday morning service at the Methodist Church. He noted about 100 to 125 there, including 18 Nabalco employees, some Catholic and Greek, three Aboriginal youths and 15 girls in choir, a dead service, uninspired music, no liturgy, hackneyed and unilluminating sermon. Christianity suffers by comparison. Hymns from the Methodist hymn book. He was often given to musings, many of which were never published, and some of which verge on the poetic or the lyrical. After returning south, he typed an unfinished reflection, which he filed away with his notes of the visit. He commenced with these remarks. If you pass through the door of the Methodist church at Jakala on Gove Peninsula in Arnhem Land, your eyes are at once taken by two symbols. One is the cross, the other is a set of iconographs painted by Aboriginal artists. They stand there on the far end wall beyond the altar, in some way sanctifying each other in the turbulent life that now confronts the Yakala people. On a Sunday morning a few weeks ago, I went through the door. The heat was oppressive. The high cumulus clouds were building up to a half promise of rain. The choir sang sweetly about what tears the evil one hath in his garden sown, and behold me standing at the door, and hear me pleading evermore. We heard that Jesus said, I am the door, and came to the benediction that is through Christ that all of us, Jew, Gentile, Aboriginal, and European, are able to come in the one spirit into the presence of the Father. I have to confess that some of the time my thoughts wandered, 
Perhaps it was the heavy electrical charge in the atmosphere, or the ceaseless wailing of the Aboriginal children in the congregation, or vividness of the flame tree flowers against the blue of the lower sky, or perhaps the conjoint symbols on the wall. I kept wondering, if the wall should still be standing in a few thousand years' time, could an archaeologist of the day imaginably deduce from them anything of the torment of choice that has become the stuff of life and conscience at Yakala? The answer had to be no. The data would be insufficient. Other things would be needed. I began to conjure them as we sang, I bore the cruel thorns for thee. I waited long and patiently. His thought then turned to bauxite and money, quote, less as holy symbols than as oafish graffiti making a palimpsest on the erased cross and iconographs. Stanner returned to Canberra convinced that the iconographs would enrich the local community and the nation for generations to come. He had work to do, ensuring that bauxite and money did not erase them any more quickly or completely than the Aborigines would wish. Those iconographs had inspired the artistic design of the petitions presented to the Australian Parliament in 1963, capturing the imagination of the nation. The stuff of life and conscience at Jakala had taken on national significance in the wake of the 1967 referendum. One of the conclusions I came to was that it was precisely a modest referendum carried overwhelmingly by the Australian people that provided the impetus for change. But it was the institution of such a council which was the catalyst for that change. These three, as the council, I think were instrumental in helping to move the country from the mentality of terra nullius to land rights and from assimilation to self-determination. But they would be the first to admit that given their task was not administration, they did nothing to set limits on those concepts. And I think a lot of what we've been engaged in for the last 40 years is trying to work out what are the limits on those concepts of land rights and self-determination. Coombs was not one given to the same poetic musings as Stanner, but there was a time in 1976, he gave the Murdoch lecture, and he looked back on the 1967 referendum. And he said this, and I quote from page 177. I do not think it's to say too much if I remark that these years of work among Aboriginal Australians and in seeking to influence policies and attitudes towards them have led me to question whether we, the dominant white society, may not lack the spiritual qualities to resolve this problem quickly. Until the arrogance, the prejudice, the fear which still largely determine our attitude towards Aborigines gives way to humility, generosity and human warmth. There can be little grounds for hope of a quick resolution. If there's a taste of ashes on the lips of white Australian civilization, it's because while we have mastered a continent and subordinated a proud people, we have remained in spirit aliens and strangers to it and them. One of the things which confronted them as they opened up this ground of land rights and self-determination was precisely the question how to allocate the resources 
and who would make decisions on the allocation of resources, particularly to outstations. They also reckoned with the enormous problem that they confronted of alcoholism on remote Aboriginal communities. When Viner was retiring, and uh, at the same time that Dexter was finishing up in the Council for Aboriginal Affairs, there was a very moving exchange of correspondence between Dexter and Viner. Amongst other things, Dexter wrote, and I quote at page 179, in my view, it's essential that we should not preempt the options of such Aboriginals. To the extent that we build or facilitate the building of houses, hospitals, schools, stores, and so on in their areas, we tend to fix the people to particular areas and circumstances. Of course, there have to be some material facilities and services in the tradition-oriented areas, but we need, I believe, to keep these from spawning ad infinitum and rather to think in terms of providing and maintaining a limited number of major centres, serving not only their immediate inhabitants, but decentralised groups in a much wider area. The Council for Aboriginal Affairs over a period drew attention to the profound significance of the decentralisation movement, he wrote, including the need to preserve for tradition-oriented communities the option to move out from the main centres if they so desire. Partly what I am saying is that the decentralised groups cannot expect the same level of provision of material facilities as applies at the centres, and indeed the provision of such facilities would destroy much of the essence of the decentralisation movement. I think you can sense there some of the tensions which we're still wrestling with as a nation. The question is, who's at the table? Who has the voice as these matters are negotiated? One of the other things I did with the book was looking, uh, particularly given my interest as a lawyer, of course, and I have the privilege to be the son of Gerard Brennan, who'd been the counsel for the Aborigines in the Woodward Royal Commission. He'd been an advisor to the Council of Aboriginal Affairs with the drafting of the Land Rights Act, and of course he wrote the key judgment in Mabo. But also Sir William Dean, who I was privileged to work when he was a judge on the federal court, and Bob Ellicott, who I think is an extraordinary Australian in all of this story, and he was very generous with his time, when you appreciate that he took over as Solicitor General from the later Sir Anthony Mason, who of course was later Chief Justice of the High Court. The thing about Ellicott was as a young Solicitor General, he was aware of this litigation and the political anxiety which was at play. Mason, as Solicitor General, and it's no criticism of him, said, well, this is a case being heard in the Northern Territory Supreme Court. It's not a matter for me as Solicitor General to be involved. Ellicott looked at it and said, if ever there is a case the Solicitor General should be involved in, this is it. And the extraordinary thing with Ellicott was once he knew that the Aborigines were going to lose the case in Malerpam and Nabalco, he sat down and wrote what I think was a 28-page memorandum to the then Liberal government saying, it is not a question of if we grant land rights to Aborigines, it's a matter of how we do it, and we have to do it now. And from there, he was extraordinarily engaged. There's a wonderful part I quote in the book where, of course, Ellicott, like many of the Aboriginal plaintiffs in the case, as I've already indicated, was a strong Methodist uh, member of the Methodist Church. 
And so when the case actually moved here to Canberra, he got permission from Sir Edward Woodward, who was the counsel for the Aborigines, to take Gulleroy Unipingu and the other Aborigines along to the Methodist Church on the Sunday morning, then to host a barbecue at his home that Sunday. And as he later said, and allowed it to be quoted, it's not every Solicitor General involved in a land rights case who's able to invite them home for dinner and then we sat around and we sang gospel songs and they sang their traditional songs. And the contribution he made, I think, as Solicitor General was quite profound. Uh, Sir William Dean, I think, as a judge of the High Court in one of the early cases in Gahardi and Brown, summed up uh, the issues that we're still very much wrestling with. This is what he wrote, and I quote at page 282. One cannot but be conscious of the diversity of the views that have been expressed about the identification, extent and resolution of the problems involved in the mitigation of the effects which almost two centuries of alien settlement have had on the lives and culture of the Australian Aboriginals. Even among men and women of goodwill, there's no obvious consensus about ultimate objectives. At most, there's a degree of consensus about some abstract generalised propositions that within, the, within limits, the Aboriginals are entitled to justice in respect of their homelands. That within limits, those Aboriginals who wish to be assimilated within the ordinary community should be assisted in their pursuit of that wish. That within limits, those Aboriginals who desire separately to pursue and develop their traditional culture and lifestyle upon their ancestral homeland should be encouraged, assisted and protected in that pursuit and development. It is in the identification and resolution of the problems in determining the limits that consensus breaks down and that the greatest difficulties lie. The cause of the Aboriginal peoples will not be advanced if those difficulties are ignored. To the contrary, the difficulties will only be exacerbated. I trace in the book how Sir Edward Woodward, when he set up the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Land Rights in 1974, constantly reported that all he could do would be make recommendations which might hold for the next 40 years. Well, guess what? Here we are 41 years on. And guess what? If we are attentive to Aboriginal voices, what do we hear constantly across the top of Australia, whether it's Gulleroy Unipingu or Noel Pearson or whoever? It's we're land rich but dirt poor, which comes down to that question about the limits that Sir William Dean was speaking about. That is finding the appropriate balance between security of land title for future generations and utility of land for the present generation. There are now vast Aboriginal land holdings, but their utility is being questioned by those who are the very holders of the title. Huge social question, only to be resolved with the right people at the table. The other huge issue, as I've indicated by quoting there from Dexter, is that about the allocation of resources and the allocation of services, particularly to the remote communities and outstations. How do we find the balance once again between those who want to live a traditional lifestyle on their traditional lands while at the same time being able to deliver those services which are appropriate for any Australian citizen 
of the 21st century. So I've suggested these are the questions, the lessons moving forward in terms of the referendum, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions on that, so I'll only speak about that for a few minutes. In the latter part of the case of the book, trying to take to heart the lessons from post-1967, as I say, I put the fairly simple thesis that it's a modest referendum which carries overwhelming support that has the prospect of instituting political change. We in Australia are in a very difficult moment with this debate at the moment. Part the issue is we have to face the facts. As I say, we are a nation which is marked by constitutional sclerosis, by which I mean we are a nation which is not minded to amend our constitution very much at all. There have been only eight amendments of the Australian constitution since Federation. Let me very briefly outline them to you. Two of them were to do with the way we elect senators. Most of us wouldn't even remember what the changes were. They were housekeeping arrangements about how we elect senators. Two of them were about the Commonwealth taking on responsibility for state debts as we emerge from being six colonies to the Commonwealth of Australia. I can see on your faces already you're saying, what a yawn. How pedestrian, precisely, that's what these changes were. There were then two other housekeeping items. One, to allow members of the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory to vote in referenda, a self-evident proposition. And the other was to impose a retirement age of 70 years on federal judges. They're the six highly pedestrian changes of eight that were made. The other two changes affected the exercise of Commonwealth power. One was, after the Second World War, giving the Commonwealth basically the power to pay pensions. Well, did you think many were going to vote against that? And the other was the 1967 referendum which took out the two adverse references to Aborigines in the Constitution. So that's why I am unapologetic, despite much of the debate at the moment about changes might, which may be simply minimalist or symbolic, there's been very little other change to the Australian Constitution in our history. And the thought that there will be substantive change at this time, I think has to be handled very carefully indeed. First lesson. Second lesson, obviously we are a very different polity from what we were in 1967. There is absolutely no point in going ahead with a referendum unless it enjoys the support of the overwhelming majority of the Australian Indigenous leadership. If they're not interested, then it would be absolute folly for our politicians to pursue any particular cause. But what we're hearing at the moment is that indeed some of the Aboriginal leaders are saying that what we want is change, not simply that of acknowledgement, but we want substantive change there in the Constitution. My suggestion of late has been simply this. 
I think we need a two-track procedure in the modern Australian polity. We need to hear the voices of the Indigenous leadership. Basically, what are their short, medium, long-term goals as to what they would like to see reflected in the Australian Constitution. But it's the Constitution for all Australians, and all Australians of voting age have to vote. So I think the next necessary step is that there's got to be a show of real leadership by our political leaders, Abbott and Shorten, where they have to then indicate which of those aspirations they are prepared to sponsor during the life of the next parliament. And that has to be a list which is presented to Indigenous Australia. Our Indigenous leaders then have to tell us whether or not that list is one which they are prepared to endorse, or if it be one where they say, no, that's not good enough, we'll wait for another day. I'm one of those Australians who will respect whichever view they reach. If they say, yes, we will endorse this particular list, then that would be the appropriate time for a constitutional convention or whatever in order to scrutinise these issues. You will remember that Julia Gillard as Prime Minister set up an expert panel. And that expert panel was chaired by a very distinguished lawyer, Mark Liebler, and a very distinguished Aboriginal leader, Patrick Dodson. A keystone of their recommendations was to put in the Australian Constitution a clause saying, thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of race. I'm one of those Australians who is highly supportive in theory of the notion, thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of race. In fact, I do claim, perhaps a little immodestly, that if you look at the historical record in 1994, the Constitutional Centenary Foundation, in a paper written by myself, put forward nine options, including a non-discrimination clause. Then in 1995, in a book, One Land, One Nation, I explained that proposal. Then in the 1996 Roma Mitchell oration, I strongly advocated it. But then came the High Court's WIC decision, which was a very complex decision. And in 1998, we had a very bloody debate in the Australian Senate with John Howard's amendments to the Native Title Act. Basically, without going into too much legal detail, Bob Brown and the Greens put forward a proposal that there be a clause put in the Native Title Act saying that the Native Title Act will be strictly subject to the Racial Discrimination Act. Not only was that unacceptable to the Howard government, it was unacceptable to the Labor opposition because it was said that it would render uncertain a lot of the work done in the Native Title Act for the benefit of pastoralists and miners. And so, to those including members of the expert panel, some of whom, as I say, should have known better, basically, if you want a non-discrimination clause in the Australian Constitution, you first of all have to call the Business Council of Australia, the National Farmers Federation, and the Minerals Council to the table, and get them to give the tick to Bob Brown's amendment in 1998. If and when that is done, we'll be in a position to talk about a substantive clause in the Australian Constitution. Mind you, I think there are further complications as well, but I think that one is sufficient to indicate that the prospect of having such a clause put in the Australian Constitution during the life of the next parliament, I don't think is very great. And if that is a precondition of Indigenous Australia, I respect that, 
And I say, well, we probably have to wait until we become a republic for those changes to occur. As I say, I have dedicated the book to the young man at Daly River who took his life. I've dedicated to him and others like him caught between the dreaming and the market. My experience as a non-Indigenous Australian is that those Indigenous Australians who I think have the firmest foothold in Australia today are those who have a foothold both in the dreaming and in the market. Those who are the most dislocated are those who have a foothold in neither. And I think part the process as well as the outcome of this referendum has to be through our processes and the outcome acknowledging that Indigenous Australians deserve a foothold in each. And if we can do that, then I think all of us can walk taller with a constitution which is much improved. And that's why I've entitled the book, No Small Change. There is no such thing as a small change in this area. And if we look at the lessons of 1967, if we get a modest proposal carried overwhelmingly by the Australian people, and then with something like an Aboriginal entity, as people like Noel Pearson have been proposing, with a statutory charter at the very least, then there might be the prospect of moving forward together. Thank you. So there's plenty of time for questions and discussion. I mean, feel free to ask me about the book, but also any of the hurly-burly of the politics that's been going on in recent weeks. Down here. Thank you for that fantastic potted history uh, on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. Um, I attended this afternoon a, a, a discussion with Julie Tongs from the Wananga Nimitable Aboriginal Health Service, which is a community-controlled uh, organisation in Canberra. I'd, I'd love your quote about Coombs at the Murdoch lecture. He says it as it stands. Um, we haven't advanced at all. We've gone backwards in the last 20 years. I, I was one of the, f I'm sure there are lots in the audience who walked, uh, the 300,000 that walked across the bridge and we said sorry. Um, my question is, what can we do to prevent the 75 people who are currently locked up in the Aboriginal, um, the Aboriginal people locked up in the Alexander McConaughey Center? We continue to do this. The 18-year-olds have gone from the juvenile justice centre and now they're locked up in the AMC. We need to break this cycle and I leave others to talk about the constitutional side of things, but I'd like to not see Aboriginal people locked up. We really need to stop doing that and that's really detrimental to their mental health. So that's one question. Sure. Well, I don't have an answer except to make the observation that, of course, as you'd know, the Aboriginal imprisonment rate now is higher than it was at the time of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And the imprisonment rate of Aboriginal juveniles has gone through the roof. And so what we are confronting is something which is an extraordinary crisis. And from what I've been hearing anecdotally, I've been away a year, but on a lot of the remote Aboriginal communities at the moment, the problem with the drug ice is just horrific. And so the uh, 
offending rate has escalated appallingly. Work that is being done or has been done in terms of prison being a last resort, we know the only thing that works is programs where Indigenous Australians themselves are involved with the administration of those programs, but the sheer exhaustion of those who are professionally competent to provide those services is something which is uh, an enormous strain on the nation at the moment. So I don't see any short-term answers except there has to be, uh, rather than a reduction of government funding as there has been for so many of those programs, there has to be an increase in those funding and there has to be uh, greater public adulation given to those Aboriginal Australians who assist those who are in imprisonment. Uh, but that's not going to provide any short-term answer tomorrow and definitely no change to the Constitution is going to do it either. Uh, but one of the points I make in the book is early in my own journey in all of this, my first visit I ever made to the United States, I went immediately up to a community on the mouth of the Yukon River and I met with the Indigenous community there. I arrived and the first afternoon I arrived one of the local women took me as the first port of call to the cemetery, which I thought was passing strange until I realised how brilliant it was. She proceeded to tell me the life story of each of the young men who died in recent months and she therefore gave me a social history of that community without disclosing the confidences of any of those who are living. Yeah, I've got uh, two questions. Um, I never did understand why the Malumpa case lost. It struck me that what little I've read about it, that the judge seemed to be understanding the Terranullius uh, arguments. Second question, um, the Little Children of Sacred report made it clear um, that it was critical to have empowerment for tribal people. And um, the government at the time and uh, the subsequent governments seemed to, through the intervention and the repeal of the Racial Discrimination Act Part 2, <laughs> seemed to go out of their way, could go the, exactly the opposite way. And that's certainly been my observation on the ground as well. I appreciate your comments on that, Father. Mm, right. Well, I'm a Lerpum and Debalco. I deal with it in some detail in the book. But basically, I mean, Sir Richard Blackburn was a very fine jurist. But when it all came down to it, he was only a single judge of the Northern Territory Supreme Court. Despite some of the things that used to be said later by people like Hugh Morgan, how dare the High Court interfere with a decision of a single judge of the Northern Territory Supreme Court? Well, within the hierarchy of courts, the Northern Territory Supreme Court is well down the pecking order. So part of it was that Blackburn thought that the binding precedence upon him required a finding that the British common law did not acknowledge communal interests in land and that any interests in land which were existing or recognised would have been extinguished by the assertion of sovereignty. So they're the two legal propositions that he felt obliged to make as legal findings back then in 1971 and they're the two legal findings which were basically reversed by the High Court in Mabo in 1992. 
But the second point to appreciate, and even more significantly, and it's one of the reasons why there was no appeal in the Malerpum case, I mean, generally in a case like that, all right, a single judge of the Northern Territory Supreme Court makes a decision, fine, you start appealing up the hierarchy of courts. But what was critical to the judgment were the findings made by Blackburn where he was not convinced on the evidence that the evidence which had been adduced by Sir Edward Woodward from the traditional owners, he was not convinced that those who claimed to be members of the clan groups who were the owners of particular plots of land now were the same clan groups as of 1935 when the mission were established, let alone in 1788 uh, when there was first the assertion of British sovereignty. Now, that was critical because with the adverse findings of fact, then the prospect of having an appeal heard by the appeal court was very slight because the appeal court would have been justified in saying, we would only hear an appeal if there were findings of fact which justified us inquiring into these questions of law. And the lawyers rightly thought there was almost no prospect that the appeal court would be more sympathetic to findings about continuous connection with land. So that's basically what went on with Malerpum and Nabalco. In terms of Little Children are Sacred and the intervention, uh, one of the things I mentioned that uh, when launching the book in Darwin, I spoke at a dinner there uh, for the foundation set up by Miriam Rose Ungamer. Uh, the other speaker at that dinner was uh, the ex-chief minister of the Northern Territory. Pardon me for the moment, I've just forgotten her name. Um, Claire Martin, yes, Claire Martin. And Claire Martin was very gracious at that dinner because before a lot of the key Aboriginal leaders of the north of Australia, she basically apologised. She said, look, I got it wrong in terms of the change that we made at that time where they set up the super shires, which came in at the very same time as the Northern Territory intervention. And what happened with the super shires was where you had Aboriginal communities which had some sense of self-governance of their local community, then all of a sudden you had 6, 10, 15 Aboriginal communities all part of the one shire. I remember fronting Jenny Macklin about this when she was the minister when she spoke at the Sydney Institute. I'd just come back at that time from, day, uh, from uh, Santa Teresa outside Alice Springs. And it was heartbreaking because there I saw the immediate effect of the super shire, namely that community used to own its own backhoe. But the backhoe was taken over by the super shire and so the backhoe was some hundreds of kilometres away. Well, somebody died and they needed to have a funeral and they had no backhoe in order to dig a grave. Now, can you imagine the sense of disempowerment of an Aboriginal community when they say, we need to honour and bury the deceased and we do not have the backhoe with which to do it. So that was part of what went on at the time. And I think it's fair to say now that from the Canberra point of view, the idea of a federal intervention which was imposed top down in the way that was, I think everyone would concede that there was a lot of very good money that went after bad. And that's why I think part of the discussion at the moment has to be about 
what are the appropriate structures within our constitutional framework so that if government is contemplating measures of that sort, that there is the prospect of Aboriginal voices actually being heard at the table. And I think it's that sort of thing which Noel Pearson is trying to address in some of his proposals. Thank you for that fantastic talk. Um, I've got a couple of questions. Mm. One is fairly simple, but probably hard to answer. How do you keep up your spirits? <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is somewhat linked internationally. Can you think of any Indigenous communities that you have come across where you see some inspiration that you could imagine being utilised in Australia? Right. Well, how do you keep up your spirits? Um, you know, I did a gig down in Melbourne a couple of nights ago at the Wheeler Centre with uh, George Williams, the constitutional lawyer, but then uh, Pat Turner and Jill Gallagher, who are, you know, two of the finest Indigenous leaders you'd meet in this country, yet most of you probably don't know them. Uh, they were at the meeting with the Prime Minister the other day, and they spoke just so eloquently about their hopes and aspirations. and. You know, Pat Turner sat there, she'd said it to me earlier, uh, just after the meeting with the Prime Minister, when you'd be aware there was a bit of static as to how the meeting went down. But Pat, who was CEO of ATSIC, you know, a niece of Charlie Perkins, was Deputy Secretary of PMNC, uh, she was quite unapologetic saying, she was very surprised. She said, it is the best meeting she's ever attended with a Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition. Now, that's the sort of message that doesn't get out there very much. But what, how does it help your spirits? Remarkably. Um, I mean, some of you will be aware that, uh, you know, Noel Pearson had a go at me a few days ago, you know, we don't need another black robe, etc. Well, I turn up to address the Indigenous leaders who invited me as they were preparing for the event with the Prime Minister. And I was there to be on the panel with Pat Dodson. Well, you know, it's a pretty big buzz for someone like me to be on the panel with Pat Dodson. I mean, he is one of the great elders of the nation's history. Um, and as I walk into the room, a little bit apprehensive, Warren Mundine, who chairs the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council, calls out from the back of the room, where's your black robe? Well, I mean, immediately what that's doing is establishing the rapport and restoring the spirit. So that, that happens readily. In terms of other examples, uh, look, yes, there are instances, for example, New Zealand and Canada where there are constitutional arrangements or treaty arrangements in place, but they're not easily transposed in that, see, particularly on the constitutional rights stuff, I know at the moment there are some people out there who think I'm far too conservative and cautious on this. Maybe it's just because, you know, I had my fingers burnt a fair bit when I chaired the National Human Rights Consultation for the Rudd government, but that at least gave me the opportunity to, you know, we ran 66 community consultations around the country to get a sense of the different voices that are there about rights issues, but also to get a sense of the real lack of appetite among a lot of our elected politicians on both sides of the political fence about 
giving judges more power in relation to rights, etc. Now, we can listen to all of the constitutional lawyers who say, well, it's far more complex than that. Yes, it is far more complex than that. But in terms of the brute Australian politics, it's about whether or not elected politicians want to move into a space where they would be more scrutinised by the High Court of Australia. And let me assure you, there ain't a lot of them around. So, I think what works in terms, I mean, and I see Megan Davis, the young Aboriginal law professor from UNSW is doing a bit of this, you know, looking at some of the indicators in terms of health and education outcomes for Indigenous people in other societies, saying, well, we're lagging behind, so are there things which we can do, even though they won't be the same constitutional arrangements, can we at least get in touch with what is the spirit of those arrangements and reflect them here? Oh, sorry, well, one there and then the gentleman with the beanie, yeah. Thank you so much, Frank. You're such a terrific and thoughtful contributor on national debate for so long, and so thank you for that wonderful uh, contribution. I guess, building on the last answer, it strikes me odd that um, Indigenous leaders would be so optimistic given the meeting with Shorten and Mr Abbott recently, because just reflecting, if you might, on this notion of Team Australia, and for me, a real constricting of vision. Um, how, how is that going to impact this debate on recognise? Because mm. it strikes me as something that, that makes us less generous, less inclusive. I don't know what Team Australia is. Do you? <laughs> Could you explore that? And, mm. you know, what, what are we becoming? What do you sense, mm. you know, about the Australian public and its feeling for change generally? Mm. Well, I'd say two things to that. One is, I mean, you can't trust opinion polls as such. You never quite know what they mean. But there have been a lot of polls of late which show that, I mean, anything up to 85% of the Australian population say, yeah, sure, you know, I'm in favour of recognising Aborigines in the Constitution. Now, what that means is a whole other question and how it would reflect once you had a particular proposal out there is another issue. But I think it does indicate something of um, a good spirit, uh, which is there in the community generally. The other thing I'd say is, Gareth Evans runs a thing here, the Leadership Forum or whatever, once a year, and I was at that a couple of weeks ago. And at the dinner, like, you know, you've got a lot of head honchos who are there, and I was surprised at the table I was sitting at. I won't name anybody, but I would say to a person at that table, there are individuals who are saying, look, we just love to do something and get this right. Now, it's not their field, they don't know what it is, but basically there is a spirit there that surely we've got us in us to do something about this. Pat Turner was great the other night. You know, there were 250, 300 people there at the Wheeler Centre. And there was Pat and she just looked at everyone with that look she's got and she said, it's time we all grew up. And people took it on the chin and said, well, yeah, that's basically what it is. It is time we grew up. I mean, to think that we have a constitution of a country which has the oldest cultures and civilizations on earth, and those people are not mentioned in that constitution. It's just bizarre. 
And furthermore, that that constitution contains two references to the outdated notion of race and in terms which are not helpful in working out the jurisprudence for the Commonwealth exercising powers in relation to Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. So whatever of Team Australia, I think, I think we can do this, but it's going to take a lot of leadership from our politicians and it's going to take a lot of engagement by the Indigenous leadership in determining what it is they will or will not accept. Oh, sorry, there was one, this gentleman here, yeah. Oh. Um, yes, I'd just like to endorse the previous speaker's acknowledgement of your tireless efforts. Uh, um, in the early 90s, I was lucky enough to be in Sydney when Ray Jackson was uh, attempting to form the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Watch Committee for New South Wales, um, which, due to his indefatigable efforts, was actually achieved. Uh, there was an office set up and um, for a few months at least it was functioning very well. Um, and I'd also like to take the opportunity of acknowledging the fact that of the recent passing of Ray Jackson, who was without a doubt one of the strongest Aboriginal activists in New South Wales. Um, I was just wondering, one of the, of course, one of the major reasons for the establishment of that Watch Committee was because of the inability of the New South Wales Police Force to enact virtually any of the recommendations of Lex, Lex Wooten, the 150-odd recommendations that we put forward. Um, and I'm wondering, is, is you know, it's long it's, it's many years since it was done, but is there any way of, of actually locking in those recommendations into the police force's manuals or um, constitutions or whatever they, they have, that possibly at a federal level or maybe at, at least at a state level, um, so that, oh, oh, it's obvious that if those recommendations were adhered to, there'd be a whole lot less deaths in custody, essentially. And uh, I was also wondering, with this referendum, is there any chance that do you think there's ever any chance that we might actually get a system like they have in Canada where there is actually a number of seats that are directly allocated for an Indigenous representation in the government? Right. Well, in terms of your first question, I think it's got to be done at a state level. Uh, and insofar as it's not done at the moment, we all have to come to terms with the fact that one of the things about Royal Commissions is, look, they're very persuasive at the time they're sitting. But the moment they're finished, that's it. And unless they've got a political champion, their recommendations don't count very much. In terms of seats, the seats one, I have to confess, I see is pretty simple. The idea of guaranteed seats in the Senate for Indigenous Australians I don't think is a goer unless and until the Senate loses the power to reject supply, which requires a revisiting of 1975. I say that because there is no way the Australian public, with the politicians leading them on, would wear the phenomenon where government usually doesn't control the Senate, and if you had a situation where there were always a handful of Aboriginal senators who had the balance of power, 
their capacity to reject supply and bring the government down would be seen to be too much power in the hands of those Aboriginal senators. Having said that, and I have said this to a lot of Aboriginal leaders who I have known over the years, I think it is high time, I mean, to be very blunt about it, if a Mick Dodson, a Pat Dodson, a Marcia Langton, a Noel Pearson, a Gullaroy Unipingu had stood on their own for the Senate, they'd have romped it in. And basically, if there was a Marcia Langton and a Noel Pearson sitting in the Senate, even when John Howard was contemplating the federal intervention, he wouldn't have dared do a thing without those senators at the table. So I think there have to be other ways of thinking about these things, and I think the nation is ripe for having uh, a couple of Indigenous senators. I mean, we've already got one, but I think with those who have had a strong leadership role within the Indigenous community over the years. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.